Hello, and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank you all for the reception that this series has received thus far. It's been a long time in the making, and I've been very happy to share it with you. I'd also like to apologize for the lack of Patreon content in the past couple of months. I've been rather busy with my undergraduate thesis, and I simply have not had the time, but rest assured that the regular Patreon content will be back next month. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. In the last episode of our series on the Ukrainian War of Independence, we covered events from the outbreak of hostilities between the Bolshevik-led Russian Soviet Republic and the independent Ukrainian People's Republic in November 1917, right up until February 9th, 1918, on which day the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed between the UNR and the Central Powers, on the same day that Soviet forces captured the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Up until the October Revolution, Ukrainian nationalists had been hesitant to move in the direction of complete independence. Instead, most advocated for a federation with Russia, However, the whole equation changed when the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia. The new Soviet government reaffirmed the right of oppressed nationalities of the former Russian Empire to self-determination, even if that meant complete separation from Russia. With this in mind, the Ukrainian People's Republic, which had been initially founded as an autonomous region of Russia, began to move further in the direction of independence. Almost immediately, resistance to the new regime in Petrograd began to manifest itself in armed uprisings across the former Russian Empire. One hotbed of anti-Bolshevik activity was the Don region of southern Russia, which was adjacent to territory claimed by the UNR. Using alleged Ukrainian collaboration with the nascent white movement as a pretext, Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin issued an ultimatum to the government of the UNR, the Central Rada, which, in essence, boiled down to a demand for the Central Rada to cede its political power to the Soviets, or workers' councils. When the Central Rada refused to do so, the Bolsheviks responded by invading Ukraine with an army of 30,000 soldiers, under the command of Vladimir Antonovovsinko and Mikhail Moraviev. In response, the Central Rada issued its fourth and final universal, or declaration, wherein it proclaimed the independence of Ukraine. The invading Soviet forces heavily outnumbered the forces of the Central Rada, and they quickly advanced through the country. An uprising of Ukrainian Bolsheviks in Kyiv nearly overthrew the Central Rada, while a hastily organized group of 500 volunteers, of whom most were merely students, attempted to put up a defense at the railway junction of Kruti, some 200 kilometers northwest of the capital. Soviet forces annihilated the defending force at Kruti, while UNR forces under the leadership of journalist-turned-politician-turned-military-officer Simon Petlura suppressed the Bolshevik uprising in Kiev. With the Ukrainians' position becoming increasingly desperate, the Central Rada appealed to external powers to safeguard Ukrainian independence from Soviet domination. Russia's former wartime allies, the nations of the Entente, were hesitant to extend their diplomatic recognition to Ukraine for fear of alienating the Russian nationalists. So the Ukrainians turned toward the Central Powers, whose armies were steadily advancing across the territory of the former Russian Empire as the Russian war effort collapsed. And here would be a good place to explain how the Central Powers figure into this whole equation. Note that when I say Central Powers here, I refer primarily to the de facto leader of the alliance, the German Empire, although the Austro-Hungarian Empire as I have hopefully demonstrated in episode 1, was also rather intimately involved in Ukrainian affairs during this period. 
In the years prior to the outbreak of the First World War, the high command of the Imperial German Army had devised a highly ambitious offensive strategy known as the Schlieffen Plan. This plan relied on the Germans achieving a rapid victory over France and the West before the bulk of the army was transferred to the East to combat the greater threat, Russia. This plan failed when France did not, in fact, fall within the first six months of the war, and the West devolved into a bloody stalemate. German forces, however, met with a far greater degree of success in the East, as the disorganized and poorly led Russian army was dealt defeat after humiliating defeat by the superior German army. As the war dragged on in the West, German strategy in the East changed accordingly. The new strategy of the Central Powers would be somewhat of an inverse of the previous one, do whatever was in their power to facilitate Russia's exit from the war, so that they could transfer their forces on the Eastern Front over to the West. It had become clear to the German High Command that the Russian Empire, far from being the unbeatable colossus they had initially figured it to be, was, in fact, highly unstable, and so they sought to use whatever means at their disposal to further destabilize it. German Secretary of State Richard von Kuhlmann summed up the attitude of the German political establishment regarding Russia as follows, quote, In Russia we have only one interest, namely the promotion of the forces of disintegration, the long-term weakening of that country. Our policy must be the establishment of good relations with the newly formed independent states that are currently in the process of breaking away from Russia. End quote. It was for the purpose of expediting Russia's withdrawal from the war that the German government facilitated Bolshevik leader Vladimir Lenin's return to the country from exile in Switzerland in 1917. It was also for this reason that the Germans began to support the national ambitions of the fledgling nations that emerged from the Russian Empire's collapse, such as Poland, Belarus, and, crucially for our purposes, Ukraine. The Germans eventually got their wish. Lenin and the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government in October 1917, and in doing so, threw the entire former empire into a state of quasi-anarchy. But by the time this had been accomplished, the Central Powers' prospects were not looking much better. While they had effectively neutralized Russia and won the war on the Eastern Front, the situation on the Western Front remained largely unchanged. Moreover, on the domestic front, the situation was steadily deteriorating. A blockade enforced by the British Royal Navy was preventing all seaborne trade with the Central Powers, resulting in widespread shortages of food and other necessities in the cities of Germany and Austria-Hungary. As I went over in the first episode of the series, Ukrainian territory was rich in natural resources such as coal and iron, as well as agricultural products, all things that were needed by the Central Powers in order to sustain their war effort. A friendly and nominally independent government in Ukraine could not only give the Central Powers access to such materials, but could also act as a buffer state between their spheres of influence and that of Russia. These were the factors that motivated the Central Powers diplomats to extend a separate invitation to the UNR to attend negotiations with the Soviet Russian government that were ongoing at the fortress town of Brest-Litovsk. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk between Ukraine and the Central Powers was signed in the early morning hours of February 9, 1918, just as the Central Rada was evacuating Kiev. The first few articles of the treaty dealt with matters such as declaring a state of peace and amity between the two parties, defining the borders of Ukraine, provisions for the repatriation of prisoners of war, and the establishment of diplomatic relations, and so on and so forth. Crucial to understanding this document is Article 7, according to which, quote, 
the contracting parties mutually undertake to enter into economic relations without delay and to organize the exchange of goods on the basis of the following stipulations, end quote. What followed was the text of a supplementary treaty brokered between the Ukrainians and the Central Powers that, according to historian Laura Engelstein, quote, reads more like a commercial contract than a peace treaty, regulating prices, tariffs, railroads, currency, and customs, end quote. In essence, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk obliged the Ukrainian government to provide the Central Powers with exports of foodstuffs and other materials, and, in exchange, the Central Powers offered diplomatic recognition and all that it implied. The conclusion of the negotiations was welcome news in the capitals of Germany and Austria-Hungary, as well as a great relief to the beleaguered Ukrainian nationalists. Chief Ukrainian signatory of the treaty, Alexander Suvyuk, issued the following statement in the afternoon of February 9th, quote, We state with joy that from this day peace begins between the Quadruple Alliance and Ukraine. We came here in the hope that we should be able to achieve a general peace and make an end of this fratricidal war. The political position, however, is such that not all of the powers are met here to sign a general peace treaty. Inspired with the most ardent love of our people, and recognizing that this long war has exhausted the cultural national powers of our people, we must now divert all our strength to do our part to bring about a new era and a new birth. We are firmly persuaded that we will conclude this peace in the interests of the great democratic masses, and that this peace will contribute to the general termination of this great war. End quote. The conclusion of peace between Ukraine and the Central Powers did not immediately remedy the steadily deteriorating war effort against the advance of Soviet power. The fact of the matter was that the Soviets were still in Kiev, and the Central Rada hardly had an army to speak of. A week after the signing of the treaty, the Central Rada, from its exile in the western Ukrainian city of Zitomir, appealed to the Central Powers for military assistance. Ideally, the Central Rada wished for this assistance to take the form of repatriation of ethnic Ukrainian prisoners of war, who would then be remobilized against the Soviets. German and Austro-Hungarian governments agreed to release said prisoners of war, and the Austro-Hungarians agreed to allow the formation of units of ethnic Ukrainian volunteers from eastern Galicia to join the conflict as well. However, the repatriation effort was slow going, and as the Ukrainian ex-prisoners of war slowly trickled back into the country, the Soviets only continued to advance ever westward. Sensing the Ukrainians' desperation, the German High Command magnanimously offered to intervene in the conflict with their own army. The Central Rada agreed, but only under certain conditions which they specified. The Germans flatly denied. Realizing that they were in no place to dictate commands to their new German allies, the Central Rada agreed to unconditional German military assistance. The decision to commit to a full occupation of Ukraine was not one that the German High Command took lightly. However, many in the German general staff viewed this as a completely logical next step. General Max Hoffmann summarized the thoughts of the German High Command on the matter, quote, The Central Powers, having made peace with the Ukraine to secure the delivery of bread, had to get it themselves. We have legally recognized the Ukrainian government, and we therefore have concluded a treaty. In order to see the treaty implemented, we had to support the government which signed the treaty with us, end quote. On February 18th, a massive army of 450,000 German and Austro-Hungarian soldiers poured into Ukraine. On February 23rd, the Central Rada belatedly announced that, quote, The friendly powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, are coming to Ukraine in order to suppress the disorder and anarchy, 
and to establish peace and order, end quote. The central power's advance through the country was rapid. Making good use of the region's railway infrastructure, German and Austro-Hungarian troops swept through Ukraine with remarkable speed, making short work of the Bolshevik forces they encountered, who, for the most part, fled in advance of their tactically superior opponents. The capital itself was recaptured on March 1st. The following day, Simone Petlora led what one historian described as an unimpressive contingent of Ukrainian soldiers in a triumphal procession into Kiev in advance of the German army. This was a conscientious decision taken on the part of the German high command so as to create the illusion that the liberation of Ukraine was an undertaking in which the central Rada forces played an important role. The reality of the situation was that the forces loyal to the Central Rada, it must be once again noted, were rather small in number, at about 12,000 strong. They were over three times smaller than the occupying armies of the Central Powers. On March 3, 1918, the same day of the Central Rada's triumphant return to Kiev, Soviet Russia concluded its own peace treaty with the Central Powers, confusingly also known as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Chief Soviet negotiator Leon Trotsky had done his utmost to stall the negotiations for as long as he could, in the hopes that the German and Austro-Hungarian empires would share the fate of their Russian counterpart and collapse into revolution under the stresses of war. But when said revolution failed to materialize, there was nothing more that he could do when the German army recommenced offensive operations on the Eastern Front. Per the terms of the treaty, Russia renounced all claims to a large swath of territory on its western border, including the nascent countries of Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, and Ukraine. The Soviet government was also forced, by Article 6 of the treaty, to recognize Ukrainian independence unconditionally. Although the Soviet threat had been neutralized, at least for the time being, the Ukrainians could now appreciate the immense complexity of the situation in which they now found themselves. For most, the intervention of the Central Powers had been an undesirable but necessary outcome. The Ukrainians harbored few illusions about the true intentions of their new allies. In an address given to the Central Rada shortly after the government's return to Kiev, Prime Minister Mikhail Khrushchevsky stated, quote, German political circles have long desired Ukraine's secession, and development into an independent and strong nation. They regarded this as being profitable for Germany. During the war, the German government employed instructors to teach captured Ukrainians, acquainting them with the Ukrainian point of view and organizing them into Ukrainian regiments that could defend Ukraine after the war. This was done without the understanding or consent of Ukrainian political leaders, since they favored a peaceful settlement of the Ukrainian question with Russia. But the Germans believed that the agreement was impossible, and their expectations ultimately proved to be correct. End quote. Most Ukrainian politicians hoped, perhaps overly optimistically, that the German occupation would only be a temporary state of affairs. Writing with the benefit of retrospect, Khrushchevsky stated, quote, It was, of course, understood clearly that Germany was acting purely from self-interest in order to secure the grain promised in the agreement. End quote. In order to acquire said grain, they needed a stable government in Kiev that was capable of requisitioning it. However, the Central Rada, with its lack of an army and inability to project political power outside the capital, was not up to the task. Further complicating matters was the fact that the Central Rada had, in the final days before the Soviet capture of Kiev, enacted a flurry of socialist reforms, hoping against hope to win a decisive mass of the rural peasantry over to their side. 
among these reforms was the abolition of private property. Prompted by this, bands of armed peasants began to seize large estates in the Ukrainian countryside, more often than not through violent force of arms. Almost as soon as the Central Rada returned to the capital, German army officers began to express their doubts about its long-term efficacy. On March 9th, a Colonel von Stolzenberg, commander of the Kiev garrison, telegrammed the German general staff on the Eastern Front, quote, It is very doubtful whether this government, composed as it is of entirely leftist opportunists, will be able to establish a firm authority, end quote. Said chief of staff, General Max Hoffman, wrote in his diary three days later, quote, The difficulty in Ukraine is simply that the Central Rada has only our rifles behind it. The second we withdraw our troops, their authority will collapse at once. The cause of this is the land problem. On the land question, the more moderate Social Democrats who compose the Rada are just as idiotic as the Bolsheviks, i.e., they have also confiscated the landed estates and given them to the peasants. Consequently, the agricultural industry in Ukraine is ruined. End quote. The German army was forced to take measures into their own hands. On April 6th, Field Marshal Hermann von Eichhorn, commander of all German forces in Ukraine, issued a land cultivation order, which read in part, quote, All reports indicate that the spring harvest is being threatened with delay, in spite of the fact that the Minister of Agriculture has appealed to the peasants and has instructed the land committees to see to it that the land is cultivated, it is doubtful whether these committees have sufficient authority, and it remains unclear that the peasants will cooperate. Local German military authorities should therefore insist most energetically that the land be cultivated in their, retro in their respective districts, with the assistance of the Ukrainian land committees, if necessary, through the direct initiative of local military authorities." End quote. The remainder of von Eichhorn's order laid out the conditions for German grain requisitions, citing the terms of exchange and threatening those who disrupted agricultural activities with swift and severe punishment. The politicians of the Central Rada protested the authoritarian measures the German army was using to requisition grain, and, on April 12th, they adopted a resolution declaring, quote, "...willful intervention in the social, political, and economic life of Ukraine is not permissible." End quote. Relations between the Central Rada and their German allies were straining nearly to the breaking point. On April 24th, the German ambassador in Kiev, Alphonse Mom von Schwarzenstein, dispatched the following message to his superiors in Berlin. Quote, At meetings which were held last night between General Gruner, Count Vorgach, the two military plenipotentiaries, and myself, the following decisions were made concerning our policy and military activity in the Ukraine. Collaboration with the present government, considering its tendencies, is impossible. The establishment of a general governorship is, for the time being, not expedient. Until it is possible to preserve the Ukrainian government, it must, in its activities, depend upon the German and Austrian supreme commanders. The Ukrainian government must not hinder the military and economic undertakings of the German authorities. End quote. Fortunately for the German high command, they were not the only group of people within Ukraine who were losing their patience with the Central Rada. Conservative elements within Ukrainian society itself, namely landowners and wealthy peasants, had, quite understandably, come to oppose the Central Rada, especially given its policies on land. These two groups were not able to form a united front against the Central Rada, being divided as they were on two main issues, the national question and the land question. 
On the land question, the landowners were far more conservative, while the wealthy peasants were in favor of moderate land reform. On the national question, the wealthy peasants, who spoke Ukrainian, and who had been targets of campaigns of the Ukrainian intelligentsia to raise national consciousness, largely supported Ukraine's ambitions to achieve independence. The landowners, on the other hand, many of whom were ethnic Russian noblemen, had very little sympathy for the Ukrainian national movement. The crucial difference between the wealthy peasants and the landowners was that the latter group was far more wealthy than the former, and therefore were able to wield far more political influence. The Germans recognized the possibility of allying with the landowning class early on. In March 1918, General Wilhelm Gruner astutely wrote an admissive to General Erich Ludendorff, quote, our policy is to walk on eggshells around the Ukrainian government, which has not earned this name, and has no roots in the people. The attitude of the population is generally against us. In favor of us are the large landholders and capitalists, if we help them to recover their property. Otherwise, they too will be against us. End quote. It was for this reason, and their more reactionary political bent, that the Germans began to look to this class of people as the potential basis of a new conservative, and more compliant regime. One man in particular stood out to the Germans as an exemplar of this class, General Pavlo Petrovich Skoropadsky. Skoropadsky was born in Wiesbaden, Germany, and was intimately connected with the old Tsarist regime. In 1898, he had married Alexandra Durnovo, the daughter of Russian arch-conservative statesman Pyotr Durnovo. Skoropadsky had served in the Imperial Russian Army from the time of the Russo-Japanese War, rising to the rank of Lieutenant General by 1911. During the First World War, he had even served as an aide-de-camp to Tsar Nicholas II himself. Indeed, critics of Skoropadsky could point to a plethora of facts that, at least in theory, should have precluded him from becoming the leader of Ukraine, not the least of which being the fact that he couldn't even speak the language. According to his critics, the most quote-unquote Ukrainian thing about Skoropadsky was the fact that he had extensive land holdings in the country. In order to counter such accusations, Skoropadsky's supporters pointed to the man's admittedly impressive pedigree. Skoropadsky's most famous ancestor was Ivan Skoropadsky, a Cossack leader who had served as the hetman, or chief of the Zaporizhian Cossack host, from 1708 until his death in 1722. Despite his ties with the Russian monarchy, when Ukraine began to move in the direction of independence, Skoropadsky changed his allegiance to the nascent Ukrainian state. In the autumn of 1917, he led the defense of right-bank Ukraine against Soviet forces. According to historian Serhii Plohi, Skoropadsky represented, quote, a growing group of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who combined allegiance to Russian culture with loyalty to the Ukrainian state and nation, end quote. In any event, Skoropadsky and his popularity among the russified Ukrainian landholding class made him the perfect candidate to be maneuvered into power following a German-backed coup d'etat. Skoropadsky was first contacted by a representative of the German high command in the week of April 11th. Over the course of a few more meetings with German officers, Skoropadsky was promised the full support of the German army, if he agreed to a set of terms. These terms included, among other things, an unconditional acceptance of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the dissolution of the Central Rada, the banning of the Ukrainian Constituent Assembly, which was scheduled to be held that July, and a whole slate of economic demands tailored to facilitate the German army's requisition of foodstuffs and other materials. 
Skoropadsky readily accepted all of these terms. By late April 1918, all that Skoropadsky and his German handlers needed was a pretext by which they could overthrow the Central Rada. Said pretext came on April 24th in the form of the Dobry Affair. Abraham Dobry was a wealthy Russian-Jewish banker who was the head of a commission that was currently in the process of negotiating a more long-term economic agreement with Germany. Dobry suddenly disappeared on April 24th, and while the exact circumstances of his disappearance are rather obscure, according to historian John Reshetar, evidence points to the fact that the banker was kidnapped by a leftist pro-rata paramilitary organization and spirited away to the city of Kharkiv. Some members of the Central Rada were suspected of being personally behind the crime, but when the Germans demanded Dobry's immediate release, Hrushevsky and the Central Rada's other top officials replied, in all honesty, that they had no idea of his whereabouts. Taking advantage of Dobry's mysterious disappearance, Field Marshal von Eichhorn declared martial law the following day. He issued the following statement, quote, Irresponsible persons and organizations are attempting to terrorize the population. In violation of all law and right, they are carrying out arrests for the purpose of intimidating those who, in the interests of the birthland and the newfound state, are preparing to work hand-in-hand with Germany. End quote. In response to this newest usurpation of its authority, the Central Rada convened on the 27th and 28th to draw up an official denunciation of the German army's actions to be sent to the German civilian government in Berlin. On the afternoon of April 28th, German soldiers, after having first disarmed military units loyal to the Central Rada, stormed the Central Rada's meeting chamber as the body was in session. The soldiers were not there to disperse the meeting, but to arrest certain members of the body who had been implicated in the Dobry affair. The following day, the Congress of the League of Landowners met in Kiev. Over 6,000 delegates representing landowners from various provinces in Ukraine were in attendance. Speakers addressed those in the assembly, denouncing the disastrous socialist land policies of the Central Rada and advocating for its replacement by a conservative, autocratic government that would be able to safeguard the principle of private ownership. After the crowd had been sufficiently riled up, Skoropadsky serendipitously appeared before them to thunderous applause. Of course, this entire course of events, including the conference itself, had been prearranged by Skoropadsky and his co-conspirators. One of these co-conspirators, the former Tsarist governor of Bessarabia, Mikhail Voronovich, entreated the assembled landowners to acclaim Skoropadsky as the hetman of Ukraine, Hetman being an antiquated monarchical title previously used by Cossack leaders in the early modern period. General Skoropadsky then delivered a speech that he had prepared ahead of time, quote, Gentlemen, I thank you for having conferred your authority on me. It is not for my own gain that I assume the burden of the provisional government. You all know that anarchy is rampant everywhere, and that only firm authority can re-establish order. I shall rely on you for support and upon the stable and prudent portions of the population, and I pray to God to grant me the strength and firmness to save the Ukraine. End quote. The crowd then unanimously proclaimed Skorpatsky to be the hetman of all the Ukraine. To add a veneer of legitimacy to the acclamation, the landowners reconvened at the ancient cathedral of St. Sophia, where the hetman, wearing a traditional black Cossack uniform, was anointed by Bishop Nicomedius. That same day, the Central Rada was holding what was, unbeknownst to them, to be its final session. They had assembled that day to adopt a constitution for the Ukrainian People's Republic, 
that was to be ratified by an all-Ukrainian constituent assembly. Meanwhile, the Hetman supporters fanned out throughout the capital, quickly seizing key government ministries. The chambers of the Central Rada were defended by a small detachment of Galician riflemen, who were apparently not able to put up much of a fight. Although three of Skoropadsky's men were killed in the ensuing skirmish, that was the only blood that was to be shed during the duration of the coup. As the morning of April 30th, 1918 dawned, the Central Rada was no more. The Hetman's forces were in complete control of the capital. Anyway, it would seem that this would be as good a place as any to end for here. As a new and more compliant regime was in place in the Ukraine, it seemed as if the Germans were well on their way to achieving their strategic objectives in the country. But as we all know, Germany was fated to eventually lose the First World War. As Germany's fortunes in the war began to wane, what would become of the headline? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else, please feel free to address them to me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the description. Also in this episode's description, you'll be able to find links to the Patreon page and the unofficial eBay store, two, which are two ways that you can support the show if you'd like. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, please consider leaving a rating and review for the show on whatever podcast plat listening platform you use, and tell your friends about it. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you as always for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.